Social Sessions is a forum for discussing social-emotional wellness and safety issues in education. Thank you, uh, Dr. Blaise Aguirre, uh, Harvard University psychiatrist and uh, international expert on the social and emotional wellness of adolescents and our youth. We're so, so grateful and appreciative that you uh, made some time for us today, Doc. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, thank you so much. I'm uh, sitting in uh, my living room in a very cold uh, Boston day. <laughs> well, it's not much warmer where I am. So, Doc, as we as we get into this, I think important conversation and glean some um, important insights that you've developed over years of uh, practice in psychiatric medicine. How did you get interested in psychiatry and your work with uh, with children and adolescents? So, I was actually interested uh, in philosophy at the start, uh, and because I I loved. Uh, thinking about the nature of the human mind and how people saw the world, uh, the search for meaning and all of that sort of stuff. But one of the things that it got me thinking about was, do we actually all see the world in exactly the same ways? And um, how does our environment influence how we see the world? Um, How does our biology, our development influence how we see the world. So I moved from philosophy to psychology. And then once I started thinking about these psychological questions, I also wondered about well, what happens if, if there is a chemical upset in the brain or if someone has head trauma? And how does that influence how you see the world? And then I realized that I was actually much more interested in medicine as it pertained to uh, brain development and uh, psychiatric symptoms. So... I then decided to go into psychiatry. What happened then was that I saw that a lot of people, adults with depression and anxiety and other disorders had been suffering for a very long time. And um, I wondered if there was a way to intervene at a much earlier stage in development or certainly when we saw uh, many of the conditions uh, begin to manifest so that as a person grew up, uh, the time of suffering would have been much less than having to wait for adulthood. So I decided that uh, in my own training, I would uh, uh, do child and adolescent psychiatry. I resonate with that idea of intervention and prevention early on. Uh, in, in the work I've done over the years in behavioral threat management in educational settings, one of the, one of the core concepts and principles of, of the work is, is intervening early um, and soon and, and quickly so that things don't um, manifest in a real crisis uh, later on that could have been avoided. So I, um, I, I understand that, and it's, it's interesting for me to hear that from a psychiatric perspective, which makes complete sense um, in, in what that looks like. So, so you've been working with, with, um, with adolescents primarily um, through Harvard at uh, the McLean Hospital in, 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 uh, in Massachusetts, Belmont, if I'm correct. Yes, it's in Belmont? For, That's correct, yeah, Massachusetts. For, for many, many years. Um, and uh, I'm curious, having, having been practicing for as long as you have, uh, what's changed in the, regarding the, uh, the state of mental health or the, the social and emotional context for our youth today? What's different now than the day um, you put your white coat on and, and went into medicine? Yeah, so quite a few things have changed. Um, and so if I break them down into different categories, the first is how um, 
human beings connect with each other. So uh, when I uh, left uh, Boston University in uh, in 1996, I started at McLean Hospital in, in 2000, at Harvard in 2000. So, so when I left Boston University in 1996 as a child psychiatrist, I, uh, you know, there was no social media. Uh, when people spoke to each other, there was face-to-face communication. Sometimes you speak to them uh, by telephone. Um, fast forward to today, many of the communications I have with my patients or through social media, or through texting. I don't have to see them anymore. I don't have to hear them anymore. And sometimes they don't even want to communicate that way. So so one thing is that um, social media came along. The second thing is that with, with social media and with the evolution of the internet, uh, people became far more educated about mental health conditions. And now that was a double-edged sword because on the one hand, you could see people could self-diagnose and could wonder about uh, their symptoms by using a search engine. On the other hand, there's a lot of misinformation out there, and uh, people often get uh, mistaken or bad or erroneous information uh, by, by looking things up online. So that's one thing. The other thing that's happened uh, is that there has been an explosion of different kinds of medications. And we often see children uh, on up to eight or nine different psychiatric medications in an attempt to try to control their behavior. Mm -hmm. So uh, the days of kids on many medications um, have increased. Well, in in recent times, the number of kids with more medications uh, is far more evident than it was uh, when I first started. So those are just two areas in which, uh, uh, you know, that have changed in, in, in the now 21 years since I finished my residency. So, so I think it's, it's fascinating on a couple of connections that my, my mind's making. First of all, when we talk about um, school safety and community safety. We, we often talking uh, talk about you know meeting the our students and our community where they are. You know I, I I recall as a new police officer the best advice I got was if you're going to be an effective public servant around public safety and and, and policing you have to meet the community where they are. You have to get out of your car. You have to go talk to people and engage them in conversation and then you know years later as I was finishing my own doctoral studies in you, know, you know the the in education, a comment made around to be an effective educator, effective teacher, effective caring adult, you have to meet your students where they are. And that didn't necessarily mean in the classroom, right? And even as a parent, you meet your children where they are. So this, I'm hearing quite a bit of overlap. And, and what I'm interested in, just to the point you made about, um, you know, at the beginning of your career, um, social media and these online platforms didn't exist. And now they do. And in some ways, you're meeting your patients where they are, which is online, just as important as those who need to meet you in person. Did I hear that right? Are you able to effectively treat and engage in a multiple set of, I don't know if modalities is the right word, but engagements in what's best for your particular patient? Well, so yes and no, and and I'll I'll tell you why uh, that answer. 
the, the primary work, at least the primary work that I do, is face-to-face. Um, I, I feel that the level of connection, and I think it is also true in the basis of neuropsychological studies, uh, of how human beings connect uh, through face-to-face interactions, is the mainstay of uh, what I do. There are, uh, however, I also understand that uh, human crises don't happen simply on the days when I'm, you know, having a session. Uh, they can happen on a Saturday night or on a Monday morning before school or whatever it is. And that uh, it's part of our treatment, the way that we use it, is that uh, kids reach out in the moment of needing help. And, uh, uh, you know, I often tell them, hey, you know, look at this thing that you have in your hand. It's called a phone. And there's a very interesting app on your phone, and it's called the phone app. <laughs> Use it. Uh, but they often don't. You know, what they do instead is they text you, or, or uh, in Europe they WhatsApp uh, you, um, and they'll say things like, uh, you know, I'm having a difficult time getting out of, out of uh, bed. Um, I had a fight with my mom. And they'll text that information. And in simply insisting that they speak to you by phone or they come in to see you doesn't often work. Uh, this is the way that they're interacting. So engaging with them at that level in those moments of crisis, I think, is critical and helps them to uh, get through that moment of crisis using this other technology that didn't exist. Because, you know, I mean, 21 years ago, if someone was having a difficult time with their parent, um, they would have had to wait for the next session or maybe they would have called their office line and left a message uh, for you to get the next day. Uh, but this it does allow for much more real-time uh, intervention, which I think is one of the great benefits, um, although there's obviously some downsides as well. So it's, it's interesting. The, 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 the technology of today, while giving um, a platform for these digital conversations, something that we at Social Sentinel are obviously very concerned about for safety and security, um, being uh, more traditionally the tool of connecting to the face-to-face, the opportunity for for reaching out. Um, and I, I, I agree, you, you know, 20, 30 years ago when I was a, uh, you know, a, a young police officer, the, the options in those crisis moments were often a trip to the, um, the hospital, the emergency room, or the community crisis team uh, coming out. Do, do you think, exactly. the second thing you mentioned um, I thought was fascinating um, was medication. And so, you know, I think science and medicine has evolved in many right ways and good ways, and they give us more tools for engaging um, uh, treatment practices. Have we become, I don't know if the word is too dependent, but have we become too free in relying on these medications to, to take the place of interactions and, and and that's not a loaded question it's just i'm curious i mean where does that you yeah. know where does the world of medication play out now as a pair, you know compared to 21 years ago it seems to me that uh especially for kids who are really struggling with a lot of distress with a lot of suicidal thoughts um a lot of self-destructiveness a lot of turning to drugs and, and alcohol for uh self-medication that uh, parents go into see a mental health specialist, a psychiatrist, and say, my child's out of control. And um, because of 
the time allotted, you know, for psychiatric evaluation, which is typically not that long in most uh, mental health practices. And because parents want something to happen now, one of the things that, that happens is that many children don't get a, a complete assessment and uh, medications are prescribed. There are powerful sedators of the brain. And so what you have is a child who's maybe more sedated, more exhausted, less likely to behave in uh, destructive ways. And so parents get a temporary relief. They feel better uh, because of uh, the medication. But all the medication does is it's sort of uh, dampening the brain. It's sort of shutting it down. It's not teaching the adolescent uh, anything about how to manage difficult moments. And, you know, when we see kids who've had many medication trials or have come in on many medications, it's not a surprise to me that they're uh, so under control because the medications are preventing them from being able to think and, 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 and act, etc. So now, that doesn't mean to say that there isn't a role for medication, like with everything else, with asthma, diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis. Um, there is absolutely a role for uh, medication, but even with asthma, diabetes, or rheumatoid arthritis, there are also things that you can do in your environment and your behavior to mitigate some of the risk, you know, in terms of uh, lifestyle choices. So, so that, yes, there's a role for medication, there has to be accurate assessment and diagnosis, but it is my opinion that we are too quick to medicate our kids, and often for conditions that um, don't require medication on the one hand, or that haven't been fully assessed. So people will say, I'm depressed. They get given an antidepressant, but there hasn't actually been a full diagnostic assessment for depression. So when what I think I hear you saying is that when medication becomes the solution, we may be missing right. key opportunities. Medication, if I hear you correctly, is a tool to get to right. effective talk therapy, effective family dynamic changes, because I... I, as I'm as I'm listening and absorbing your your insights and 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 these incredible lessons, what I also I think I'm hearing is, um, you know, a, a youth, an adolescent, a child in distress to to treat and help them move through this is not just about them. It's about the dynamic in which they live, their family relations. I mean, and and if if medication is used as a tool to to calm the environment as well as the individual. Um, as long as it's that tool to talk therapy, it, it may have greater value. It's, it's when I think I hear you saying it's in and of itself the solution that we run into problems. Exactly, because, well, not only that, uh, so, you, you know, you, I think you restated the point extremely well. Not only that, but, but the other problem is, is that these medications come with pretty significant side effects. So, for instance, sure. some of the antipsychotics uh, will cause tremendous amounts of weight gain, hypercholesterolemia, a lot of uh, high blood fats, um, you know, uh, uh, cardiac side effects. And so maybe you've helped some of the mental processes, but it comes at the cost of a lot of physical processes. And, and so I think, in the, um, you know, for many people, we divide our organ systems into you know, those are the kidneys and that's the liver and that's the brain, etc. Um, and I'm only taking care of the brain. Um, I, I think it's a very black and white thing to think about the human being because 
everything impacts everything else. The brain and how you think will impact what you eat, will impact what your liver does, will impact your weight, will impact uh, your kidneys, uh, and all of those sorts of things. So, so to, to, you know, to give medications that may or may not work uh, might only be part of the solution and cause tremendous side effects is one problem. But the other problem is to simply say that that without teaching a person new ways of interacting is, is at best doing a half solution to the problem. And there is no such thing as a child because a child cannot exist outside of the context of a larger community, especially a family setting. So, so really, uh, medication is only treating a very small portion of it if it's treating anything at all. Without intervening with the family and the kid, uh, we're losing a, a, we're missing a great opportunity. It, it sounds very much to me, and, and you know, I, I clearly, I, you know, I'm not a physician, so I, I, I say this really as a layperson, um, you know, to the medical profession. It appears to me to maybe highlight some of the foundational differences um, in Western and Eastern medicine, and clearly, Absolutely. and clearly, what you're doing as a psychiatrist treating the the emotional wellness and stability of, of adolescents can't ignore all those other issues. Um, so, so given that, uh, and and given what you've seen in this context, um, what are the most pressing issues or concerns you're seeing today? Uh, in our adolescence, I mean, I'm sure it was different 20 years ago, or maybe it wasn't different 20 years ago. But what do you what do you see today? Stu- you know, students, adolescents, children from all over the world come to see you um, at McLean, right. and what do you what are you yeah. seeing for them? What, what's the issues? One of the, I mean, uh, one of the terrible trends that we're seeing is that the level of suicide, suicidal behavior, suicidal attempts self-injury, self-destructive behaviors is extremely high. And in fact, um, suicide rates in adolescent girls, for example, are at the highest rate ever. Um, And, you know, I mean, suicides in the United States, you know, we think about the the tragedy of homicide, you know, about 19,000 homicides a year, but there's 44,000 suicides a year in the United States. So it's, it's more than twice the number um, and I don't think receives the same kind of attention. Uh, in, in, in adolescence, suicide is the second leading cause of death. So um, um, after accidents, hide and homicide and, and things like that. So, so the level of self-destructiveness. But the other part of it that I you know, never used to see and, and, and see a lot now is how much of it is mediated through social media. Okay, so what are the sort of things that happen is that kids get admitted because they see that uh, the boyfriend's ex-girlfriend liked a photo on Instagram. And now, in, especially for very emotionally sensitive kids or kids who don't have the skills to manage their um, emotional outbursts, they very rapidly go from, oh, I saw uh, my boyfriend's ex-girlfriend like one of his Instagram photos. He must clearly be having an affair with her um, life is not worth living, I should kill myself. <clears throat> and we've had, um, you know, th- three kids admitted in recent months just because of an Instagram post. The other thing is just, it's how incredible uh, social media influences um, many of these kids' experience of day-to-day life. So if they post something on Instagram and no one likes it, then they feel rejected. 
Um, so even just liking or not liking something on social media can influence a lot of these young people's uh, lives. And, you know, back in the day, we took the Polaroid, we went to the post office, stuck it in the mail, sent it off to a friend, they sent it back and said, hey, that was quite a nice photo. And that was it. It took, you know, a couple of weeks. Uh, but now it's instant and there's the instant in Instagram. But that those kinds of things, or that the way people break up is by text, you know, we're done. Um, uh, and, and things like that. And then the other thing is sort of, the whole way of curating images. Um, uh, I have many people who feel very bad about themselves, who then say, I can't believe my friends are in, you know, wherever they are, on, on, uh, and then the fear of missing out. And then people use Photoshop to change how they look, and, and then people become jealous, and, and those sorts of things. So, so, uh, so that's something that I am seeing today in terms of not only fear of missing out, not only the instance of feeling rejected, uh, but also cyberbullying. Uh, that that a person who gets hold of an account or targets an account can suddenly get you know thousands of people to weigh in on the worthiness of the person. And before you know, if you were bullied, you take him you know, behind the tennis courts and teased or something like that, it was awful, but it happened between two or three people. Now it's whole communities that can can really impact uh, that. And then also just things like videotaping of assaults, videotaping of sexual aggression, um, and those kinds of things. So uh, those are just some things that are, that are definitely new. Something, a lot of things you said that I, I, I am so fascinated with, and I, I want to go back to the first thing that popped into my head. Um, when did so is the is the is the need to feel um, accepted that you know I think the need for self worth and acceptance you know has existed as long as I'm guessing you know we've existed right as as, as the, given right. the social dynamic of, of, of human beings and of every uh, I would imagine animal on the planet right um, so when did self worth what did self worth justification or or pride look like before social media as opposed to now is this a We've always had the need for self-worth, which I think we have, and we did in other ways, but now because it can be played out on social media, it's amplified. I mean, what, what, how did it happen before? I, you know, I, I don't know if I can remember before social media in this regard. Yeah. But, well, I think, I think that the, 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 the construct of self-worth in schools was, uh, for example, uh, assessed by... Uh, certain things. So, like on the sports field, how, how good a sports person you were, you know, in the in the classroom, how good a of an academic, how good a trumpet you player you were for the band, or how were a good an actor, right? Band. All of those sorts of things, um, you know. Um, and now, though, I think um, you know, or even if you're popular because you know you had you know girlfriends or boyfriends or whatever it is. But I think that now it's the number of Instagram followers that you have. It's the number of likes that you have on, um, on a photo. It's, uh, it's the number of people who hang with you uh, on your uh, Snapchat. Or, uh, so, that, so that it's, it's, it's you know, and, and the other thing is back in the day, you'd have you know, three or four very good friends. But now, you know, the idea of having thousands of friends on, on Facebook uh, or something like that. It's, just, it's, it's inconceivable to me. So, so I think that, that uh, 
measures measures of self-worth are influenced by that. But let's just take an even a different situation. When we when I applied for college, I could apply for four or five colleges, and that was that. Now, because of the Common App, kids can apply for 80 colleges. And so what happens is, is that colleges are being flooded by uh, applications. And I know that, for instance, last year, Michigan had 80,000 applications. There is no way that they had enough readers to, do, to go through all the applications. So a lot of very qualified kids were never even uh, seen. And then, uh, that, but, so electronics has made it easier mm-hmm. to apply to multiple schools. It's also flooded schools with, with applications. And then kids are feeling rejected. They've worked so hard, they've gotten straight A's, whatever it is, but they're getting rejected just because, you know, uh, there's, there's so much competition for, 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 for spaces. So I think, again, the electronics that are making our lives so much easier in many ways are also complicating our lives in some way. Your, your point, um, I think the point you made around, um, around how we judge our value, I think in some ways is, 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 is incredibly prophetic. I mean, I, I, I think to you know my my experience in 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 school in grade school and high school you know quite some time ago and you know it really was our worth was based on you know how right how smart we thought we were we were or how good we were at athletics or music or or acting or whatever other you know uh, a group activity or or thing was happening. Um, and now it's almost fame for the sake of fame. It's not about my skills, abilities, knowledge, wisdom, insights, and such. It's it's exactly. about how many people I can get to, to 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 want to follow me, and and I, I and I and, and and the impact that has. And so leading into your your conversation about you know electronics having done so much so much good, we see it, but then having so many challenges, we see it at Social Sentinel because we're we're paying attention to the you know uh, an, a massive uh, communication. Uh, a dialogue, you know, a billion conversations a day happening, um, and seeing some of the the negative aspects of the harm and the and, and the potential for for bad stuff. So, and then the other thing you mentioned about you know recording things, where you know curating and recording, capturing information in the moment. Uh, you know, I remember years ago having a conversation with um, students at uh, at the university around um, security cameras and. One, one young man pulled out a phone from his pocket and said, I, I have one, a camera on me all the time. I don't care if you put one on that building. Um, I, I thought, exactly. again, was an interesting shift in kind of, of kind of where we're going. So you're seeing all of this impacting the, 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 the emotional and the mental wellness of our, of our youth, of our adolescents around self-harm, around suicide. Um, what, what's been your reception when you work with or speak with school leaders? I know you travel the world, you travel the country. I met you at a conference of school superintendents where you're talking about this. How have school leaders embraced this message? And, and what have you been telling them? So I, I you know, it's an interesting question. I've, I've actually had three uh, different, so, so I suppose three broad categories of responses. One of the responses, and this, I mean, sadly, it tends to come from some of the more prestigious schools, quote unquote, the private schools, and that is that uh, they do not want attention on the topic. 
So they they try to move kids with mental illness out of the schools. Um, they don't uh, necessarily address in a public way when there's a lot of self-destructiveness or when there's been a school suicide. And so, so even if we have data that they're seeing in their health centers numbers of kids with, uh, for example, self-injury going up, uh, you know, the, the school that is prestigious and is well-known doesn't want to say our Ivy League-type school uh, has 12% of kids self-injuring or you know, 3% making suicide attempts, it's not a way to promote the school. And so uh, they really tend to, uh, so one, one response has been to not address it, just not even ex- accept or deny that it's there. So, uh, and then deal with it in some, in, with some internal mechanisms that I'm not quite sure about. There have been some schools that have been proactive. Um, and um, so I lecture at, parent academies in some public schools and what they do is they invite speakers um, to address different mental health uh, concerns uh, and just being very proactive and discussing various topics. Uh, and, then, and then there's the other type is the reactive type and that is that they deny, 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 say nothing, have a very big sentinel event uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, insist on uh, swooping in and uh, doing all sorts of uh, uh, work in the moment, uh, and then that tends to there tends to be a lot of attention uh, in that moment. But then it seems to die off, and then you know, it goes back to business as usual. It's a reactive so response and not a proactive response. It's it's the crisis. Exactly. It's it's what we started the conversation with. What got you into psychiatric right. medicine? This idea that you could intervene early enough it didn't escalate to crisis. And so the, I think what I hear you saying is that in some of the conversations you've had with, 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 with school leaders around the challenges, um, you know, the systems haven't been constructed to be preventative, proactive, and mitigating. They've, they've all been reactive and kind of crisis-oriented. Right. I think that there's some progressive schools that, that, that do sure. see yep. what's happening to kids in terms yep. of stress. But um, I, I don't find I don't find it so enough. I think that the other element to it is that um, you know uh, the tragedy is that the biggest mental health system for adolescents in, in the country is the, is is the school because many students are medications and receiving mental health services, and um, uh, you know in the same way that in adults the biggest mental health system is the prison system. Uh, the schools are, and I think that, that uh, many teachers, kind-hearted, well-meaning, well-intentioned, dedicated teachers, never went into schools to also be uh, kind of uh, therapeutic supports for their for their kids. We and, see that you know, we see the same thing with security. You know, superintendents yeah. who were English teachers or math teachers early in their career now have to understand access control, mass notification, social media threat assessment right. monitoring. I mean, there's, there's so many examples of the complexity of the educational system as society has evolved. So it, 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 exactly. it parallels what you're saying nicely. You once said to me, um, or I once heard you say in a presentation, that um, we've never been more connected in, in, in our history than we are today, yet so, uh, yet, yet so isolated at the same time, given, I think, your comments on 
on electronics and social media and where our, our youth and adolescents and our and we as people are communicating. I, I also have heard you talk with great optimism and enthusiasm about treatment, intervention, um, about being there to be part of helping. Um, what what keeps your drive going and, and what's the message? I mean, we can talk about suicide and, and depression and self-harm being, you know, such a prevalent issue because it is and it's an important conversation, needs to happen. And what's the, what's the positive so that that school leader isn't sitting back feeling completely overwhelmed, lack of resources, you know, understaffed? Um, what's the message of, of, of hope and kind of, uh, you know, there is a pathway to, 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 to you know, to, to helping with this problem? So here's where, here's where the hope is, is that as a species, as an animal, I suppose, I mean, we've survived for, you know, for millions of years. And, you know, people were getting it right um, a, a long time ago. I mean, we didn't see those levels of... Uh, disconnectedness and isolation uh, years back, and that's because uh, the distractions of today didn't exist uh, yesterday. Now, obviously, we're not going to go back. If anything, we're going to get much more technologically advanced um, every day so, so that we can't go back. But it takes a very, very simple approach earlier on in, uh, in, uh, in childhood uh, to intervene. Now, so for example, um, you know, uh, it, I feel very saddened when I see two-year-olds being able to play with iPads. Not, you know, and parents are often, oh, wow, look at my kids, they're so bright. And they are bright, and they're able to manipulate uh, things on screens, but it's coming at tremendous cost, and the, and the cost is normal human connection. Now, we have legislation for all kinds of things. Uh, you know, when people can buy drugs and alcohol or cigarettes and, and, and alcohol, when people can buy guns, when people can drive. You know, one, one thing would be to, to just say, you know, that these products are not helpful for children under a certain uh, age. Uh, and that in, in schools particularly, that we uh, limit technology use to... Um, to maybe doing homework or, or your classroom um, uh, as a way of education, but that we never, ever use it in place of a human teacher who can connect directly with students. You know, that, that, that introducing the concept of collaborative uh, problem solving much earlier on, having kids working together on projects, uh, interacting with each other, teaching kids the skills of emotion regulation, distress tolerance, uh, interpersonal effectiveness, paying attention to their uh, emotions early on are skills that they will take with them for the rest of their lives. Um, uh, but I think that by insisting on academic excellence, we're leading to emotional poverty. And uh, uh, so, so, so the hope that I see is when I see very troubled kids using uh, basic skills of behaviorism to get so much better. I think what would happen if we could use those technologies in less sick populations and much earlier on through repeated practice? Uh, uh, I see tremendous hope yeah. in that. And I think it will 
override the ill effects of uh, of the social media or social anti-media or anti-social media disconnectedness. This concept that you raise of emotional poverty, I think, is is powerful. I, I think that that the the image that conjures or the understanding it elicits of um, of creating. Um, too much opportunity for instant gratification, for lack of connection. You talked exactly. about what you're seeing with, and what, what I, I mean, I have I have children who are in high school, and I I, I you know I, I observe them and their friends interacting, and this idea of important emotional connections happening via you know one dimensional texting and social media, and uh-huh. you know and 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 ending relationships and starting relationships um, without. Even a face-to-face, I you know, I, I think um, is all maybe the result of this uh, idea that you 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 put forth of this emotional um, poverty. And what I hear you saying is simple engagement early on that that allows our 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 children to interact with themselves, with each other, with the adults in their lives um, is is a part of staving off some of. The, the challenges and the issues that you're seeing every day walk through your doors at the at the hospital and the clinic. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, look, the, the brain learns through repetition. I don't know of a single thing uh, that that people do in terms of a skill set uh, that they don't do through repetition, whether it's driving a car, playing the trumpet, doing a sport, repetition, repetition, repetition. Uh, it's much harder to learn something later on in life than it is earlier on in life. And that's because of brain neuroplasticity. Learning takes uh, hold much quicker when people are young. So, you know, that's why people have a harder time learning a language when they're uh, adults than when they're children. So if you can uh, teach interconnectedness, interbeing, uh, much earlier on, then having to wait till they're 18 or 20 years old and saying, what do you see when you look at my face? But if you can have those kinds of connections, which is what used to happen for you know, thousands of years of human evolution, is that pe- this is the way that people connected. And so we saw lower levels of distress and dysregulation and upsetness because they could read each other. They understood each other. They were able to be curious about each other's experience. Now, if you send me a text and I misinterpret it, I don't hear a voice, I don't see your face, and I can go, I can automatically make assumptions, uh, you know, as they say in science, nature abhors a vacuum. Uh, the brain abhors a, 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 a vacuum of knowledge, and so when you just see a text, out of context, a disembodied text, you can't contextualize it. Um, uh, and so you may, and for many kids who are sensitive, they, they, they misinterpret. So, so the idea of just like much, much earlier on having them get dirty in the mud, play together, even fight, uh, allows for a level of brain teaching that is healthy for kids. You know, you, as I listen to you again, um, I'm struck by this idea that we have a generation of teachers and principals and university administrators <coughs> and staff who are, um, you know, it, like myself in the 50 plus category of age, um, who are interacting with the, uh, the, the adolescents of today. And, and it's not only understanding everything you've said, it's also recognizing there's a great potential for an edu- uh, uh, um, a communication barrier, right, between 
these generations and what that means. I, th I think to my, my son the other day was talking about um, uh, applying for a position or, or, or some such thing. And I had said to him, did you, did you stop by or did you pick up the phone and, and call right. the people? And he said, well, I sent them an email. And I said, okay, right, but did you right, pick up the phone and go see them? No, but I sent them an email. And I, right. that was the whole conversation right. about, you, you know, right. you need to go see them. They need to, or, or, or talk right. to them. They, you need to be more than one of 10,000 emails they get a day. And so I, I also wonder about what's the impact of the generational communication challenges, um, not only understanding kind of the impact of, of, of technology on our, our social and emotional wellness. I remember once seeing uh, a young woman, um, and her father had dragged her in because she had hooked up with three guys at a party, and she thought that the child was headed for a terrible mental illness outcome. And you know, the idea that in a very public way somebody may have done uh, those kinds of things, be seen. Uh, photos taken, put on social media, uh, to me, it would have been tremendously shaming back in my day and, uh, and sort of abhorrent to think that my own kids were doing it. When I was talking to my own children about something like that, they seemed very nonplussed by it. Uh, so they said, yeah, that's just what they do. Like, this is what we do on, you know, on, on contemporary social media. It's, you know, maybe it's a little bit out there and everything, but the idea that there would be embarrassing videos of them on, uh, on uh, public forums um, is, well, the guy who's interviewing me, who's my age, is going to have his own uh, <laughs> embarrassing photos. So that, uh, you know, it's honor among thieves. It's mortifying so, uh, to, to us parents, though. I can... <laughs> I completely agree with you. There are going to be thousands of people who are listening to this podcast or watching it at some point, and we're going to have the same reaction of, oh, i got to have that conversation with my kids again. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Well, yeah, so, so I, think, I think that the, the, the other thing is that we're judging it from our uh, point of view. And, you know, I, I don't want to get into judging. Um, the, the, uh, the specific behaviors bother me less because I just, uh, you know, nothing surprises me anymore when high-level politicians and uh, uh, and social media rulers can, you know, uh, take pictures of their private and intimate parts and send them all over the internet uh, to different people and everything. Okay, I mean, uh, you know, it's not my thing, but, uh, that, but you know, these are the sorts of things that that people do, the behaviors are less uh, worrisome in and of themselves than the manifestation of uh, whatever the behavior is as a consequence of difficulties in, in, in regulating human connection, regulating uh, emotions, and, and, and despair that comes along with that. Um, so I, I think it's symptomatic, but I, you know, in and of themselves, any specific behavior, um, uh, you know, you have to be careful not to judge it necessarily through thirty-year-old wisdom. I, I think it's so well said. Um, I, I've taken so much from the conversation today, uh, Doctor uh, Aguirre, and I, I think that um, what I, what I've heard from you is the solution to many of the problems that that you may be seeing all comes back to a human connection. We often talk about in our schools uh, that the, 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 the best 
dose of medicine for whatever might be going on in, in one of our uh, students' lives is a real genuine connection to an adult in the school who cares for them and is there for them. And I, what I hear you saying is that today's technology has given us some of an opportunity to, to lose sight of some of that connection or to do it in a way that might not be as healthy. There's a lot of upsides to the technology we deal with today, and, and clearly we all agree to that. Um, and at the same time, there is a downside. And like you, um, we at Social Sentinel see, because of what we, we search for and what we're able to share with schools, uh, districts, universities, colleges, um, are those signals of harm, those, those, those leaks, so to speak, from, from young adults um, who are crying out for help. And so what I, what I get the sense is that that's who's walking through your door, that's who you're trying to help. Um, and uh, I think that um, uh, it's such important work you're doing. Um, bef before we, we wrap up, I mean, I, I've, I've, by the way, I've taken so many notes that I've, I, I feel like I, I need to enroll in a class you're teaching and, and, and maybe come back for more. Um, is there anything about our youth and their development that we haven't talked about that you think it's important for school administrators um, and stakeholders who are listening to this uh, podcast or watching this video podcast to know? Yeah. Uh, um, so one of the things that I think is that I truly don't know, or I haven't met, I'm not saying that they don't exist, but I just don't know of many children who wake up in the morning and think to themselves, my life is perfect. I'm going to go to school and I'm going to screw things up today. I'm going to make life difficult for my teachers. I'm going to be the class clown. I'm going to go to detention. And so, so I think that one of the things that happens is that when we see children behaving in ways that we don't like in the classroom, you know, we often uh, ask the question, what the hell is wrong with that kid? We rarely ask the question, what happened to that child? And I think that if we can imagine that for most children, our own children, our neighbor's children, our community's children, most kids want to do the right thing. So that when we see difficult behaviors, it's often because something has happened or because they don't have the ability to manage life in a different way. And I just think that from that perspective, it's a more compassionate way of seeing it. Now, that doesn't mean that it's you know acceptable to have disruptive kids in, 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 a, in a big classroom, but rather than simply punishing them for an inability to control themselves or with lack of curiosity about what's happened, we automatically then stigmatize kids, we think of them as bad, and that's a message that they, whether it's said out loud or implicitly, uh, they begin to believe, and then they start behaving in, 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 in more difficult ways. Now, of course, there are one or two kids who maybe uh, do intend to, to, to cause harm, but I think it's a, it's a tiny fraction, it's a tiny minority. And so to sort of think about them with compassion, think about them that whatever is going on in their lives in the present moment is probably impacting how they're behaving and being curious about that is more important than judging the behavior. I like the message of compassion and empathy. Um, I think it's deeply meaningful. You know, I, I, it, it, my own life, um, thinking about that in relation to the work we do and internally, um, it seems to be a central theme as of late. So it's, it's meaningful to hear that coming from you because, again, what I, what I hear you saying is 
um, before we, we point a finger and say, what's wrong with such and such? It's, you know, what happened to them? How are we supporting them? What's, what is it about our environment that is, is helping or hurting um, them? Uh, and I think that message and that information is, is important and not blaming information, not, you know, what did I do to cause this, but how can yeah. I impact that, that person's life in a way that helps them given what they've been through and what they're doing? Well, this is exactly right. I mean, if you think about, if you have a disagreement with someone, um, you then say, you know, blah, 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 and they respond in a way that you don't like. As, as, in a, as a general rule, we all tend to feel that our position is justified, and we're indignant when the other person doesn't agree with us. And then we start to think about the other person as a bad person or uh, uh, untrustworthy or whatever it is. But they're thinking exactly the same thing because they're coming at it from their point of view, given their neurobiology, given their experiences. You know, it's a little bit like when you're in traffic. You turn around and you say, I can't believe it, there's so much traffic. But you never say, I am traffic. Because you do want traffic. You know, and the guy next next to you is also thinking, oh, my God, that there's all this traffic. So you're, you're part of that. So I think that this is the interaction of anything that we are all bringing. Um, so we're all bringing that of us to what this transaction is. And sort of simply pointing the, the finger loses an opportunity to include our own contribution to what's going on. The upside of that is that if we bring some contribution to some conflict, we're also part of the solution because then we can bring part of the solution through us. It's not just on the other person. Makes me, I, I, I have to pull in a reference that only a handful of, of people listening to this might get, but it's, it all goes back to the Burt Bacharach song. What we, you know, all we need is a little love, like what the world needs now is, is a little love, right? A little compassion. Um, it, it makes good sense. And I think that level of introspection is, is important um, at the in, in individual connection. Like I'd like to know that every teacher and every coach and every adult that my children interact with in their school asks that question or those questions. I'd like to know that every you know, administrator and leader can find a little bit of, of mindfulness um, to be tied to them. And that's another thing that I've heard you, you speak about um, quite eloquent, eloquently as I say the word eloquently and I don't get it out right, um, this idea of, of mindfulness. Um, I, I, I've heard you lecture on that. I've heard you speak to this. Um, what, what is that for our listeners? When, when you talk about that in the school setting and, and, and interacting with, with our, our youth and, and even how you treat the, the, the young people that come through your door, um, it, it goes back to some of the technology discussion, but can you just expound a bit more on that? Sure. Uh, you know, I mean, the... When I had first heard about mindfulness, I was thinking about, you know, Tibetan monks up in the mountains and everything. So, so, but if, you know, I mean, and some people want to practice very deeply mystical uh, mindfulness, but if you were to just examine the contents of your mind at any given moment, you know, you sort of it's think, okay, Saturday, what do I have, la- what do I have later on? You know, do I have to, do I have plans later on or what happened yesterday? And so let's imagine that you could just label the thought. Uh, and that's just saying, okay, that's a future worry. That's a future worry. That's a past concern. So if you were to say future thought, present thought, past thought. 
and how quickly our minds get taken away from what's actually happening right now. Now, thinking is for planning. Thinking is not for worrying. Because often people get caught in ruminative thought spirals. They say, what happens if, what happens if, what happens if, what is this, and what is that? You say, okay, let's plan for that thing happening. So you can plan for something, but then that rumination, but then you can say, you know, we can get taken so much out of the present moment that all we do is spend worrying about a, past, a future that doesn't exist and a past that is no longer there. So, so by being present, at least you have a fighting chance of dealing with the present moment reality. So it's this idea of just like training the mind to focus on the present, not to worry about the past or, or, or get into ruminative worry thought spirals about the future. So it's sort of a training in, 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 in how you focus your attention. And, you know, and actually it's interesting that a lot of uh, great uh, sports teams are now introducing mindfulness as part of their curriculum, and they'll often say, look, it doesn't matter how many points we're down. All you have is a present moment. Do the best you can in the present moment. And many, you know, when you hear people being interviewed, it's, how, how did you guys do what you did? It says, I was just in the present moment. You know, it's not thinking about the final outcome. It's just, I can do the best I can right now. So so it's sort of teaching that rather than getting into um, religion, because it'll, it can often, people might feel offended by discussing mindfulness from a religious saying, well, that's not my tradition. But you don't have to go there. You just can go into present moment awareness. It it um it gets me thinking about conversations I've had with with friends, personal friends who are who are therapists, and they they talk about that that school of therapy, um, which I, I only make the analogy of given your background in psychiatry, obviously, but that um in, in you know the conversation in the room in the moment in that talk therapy is is the one that in in, in some schools of of thought uh, means the most, and what I hear you saying is. Being present and dealing with what you can control in the moment and how it can influence you um, likely has the greatest impact on on, on what will happen on the back end. And I think that's, a, yeah, a, again, another important message. Exactly, because you're dealing with reality as it is. Uh, I mean, you may, you know, whether you like it or, or you don't like it, reality is still as it is. I mean, it's nice when you like when reality is as you like it, but not liking it isn't going to change it. Important. So what I take away from this this conversation, in part, if I can sum it up, is um, our our youth are deeply affected um, by the technology in their lives and the ability to communicate instantly and quickly, and where their self worth is 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 um, is measured, um, and that the antidote to some of the downsides, because there are certainly upsides to the to the technology in our world, but the downsides um, clearly are prevalent and. Uh, the, the solution to some of that downside is um, be present, be mindful, be in the moment, be connected, um, help our, our, our youth um, know that there's somebody out there who cares for them and help them um, have a, uh, a meaningful human interaction before they rely on the technology interaction. And what I hear you saying is that all these things together um, may help make um, today's youth a bit more resilient to some of the challenges they're facing around um, their social and emotional wellness. And I think it's a powerful exactly. message. Exactly, and, and that also because, um, uh, you know, parents themselves are often overwhelmed uh, that 
taking a little bit of side, taking some time aside at school, making it part of the curriculum, uh, is one of the ways that uh, you know kids as a collective can get the benefit of these ideas. Because I think you know you try to say to your own children. Hey, listen. Let's go practice some mindfulness. And I think none of my other friends are doing it. But if you're doing it in schools as part of a curriculum, then then uh, you know then that's just the expectation. Mm. Powerful lessons, Doc. I I as I listen to you and as I've gotten to know you, I um I am um so grateful that uh, that you are are doing the work you're doing um at uh, at McLean and that you are traveling the world and sharing these important messages uh, with, with educators and parents and, and students and, and youth. Um, and I know that we are, we're all better um, given uh, the insights you've been able to share. So um, I want to just thank you so much for taking time out of your day for us and sharing your wisdom and insights. And I'm, I'm looking forward to continuing um, our connection. Well, I think I think um, that, uh, first of all, thank you very much for having me um, on this podcast. Um, I, I just want to say also that I, you know, I really appreciate what you're doing. I mean, I often get um, opportunities to, to talk and to uh, teach and all of that, um, but I felt that the work that you're trying to do in terms of the upside of how we use technology in a thoughtful and very compassionate way to uh, address some of the uh, worrisome concerns that we have for our kids um, is something I strongly support. And, uh, you know, we, we're approaching similar problems through different uh, methodologies. And uh, uh, it, this was definitely something I was willing to uh, take some time off on a Saturday to do. So. Oh, that's fantastic. Means the world. Means the world to us, um, Doc. It, it really does. Uh, and with that, uh, I want to thank Dr. Blaise Aguirre, uh, Harvard University psychiatrist and um, expert in um, the social and emotional wellness of adolescents working out of the McLean Hospital in Belmont, Massachusetts. Thank you for making time for us today, Doc, and um, have the rest of a great day. Thanks very much. Take care. Thanks. Bye, Gary. Take care, Doc. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Social Sessions. Subscribe to our channel today and stay tuned for more.